This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. One of the top issues in this year's legislative session is housing. As regular listeners know, we talk often about how this is something that impacts the entire state and Governor Inslee and the legislature have made it a priority for this year's 105 day session. So here to talk about what is happening and about how you can get involved is Jesse Simpson. He is the government relations and policy manager with the Housing Development Consortium of Seattle King County. Jesse, Jesse, welcome to you. Hi, great to be here. Thanks and also Anna Fahey is Senior Director of Communications and Campaigns with the Sightline Institute. And hello to you. Hello. Thanks for having us. I'm so glad that you're both here. And uh, for folks behind the scenes, you were able to join us at the last second. And we're just so very grateful for you for doing so. You know, as I said, the housing crisis seems to really touch every corner of the state. And it's also proven to be extremely challenging as an issue. I wonder if we could start by talking about the scope of the housing problem right now in Washington state and why we think it's been so hard to address. Anna, can we start with you? Sure. Well, I'll start with just sort of the the deficit that we're in. Washington is experiencing a housing shortage of more than 140 homes um, by most estimates. Um, That's homes we need right now for people who are already here, who already make their livings and their lives here. Um, We're in a deficit. So um, you can kind of extrapolate from there, do the math. Um, When there's a shortage, people have to compete for what's available and that is pushing up costs and rents. And we know that there are ramifications for people of all incomes um, across the state. First-time homebuyers, according to one study, can only find homes that they can afford in three Washington counties, and all of those are in eastern Washington. Um, And the good news is, I guess, (laughs) the silver lining is that the shortage is really of our own making in a lot of ways. So it means that we can get ahead of it if we can get past some of those political and other obstacles that that you kind of alluded to. Um, Some of that has been a push and pull between sort of state leadership and what um, city and county um, jurisdictions have traditionally had in their, um, under their purview. And so I think we're getting to a point in Washington state where the affordability crisis is big enough, it's touching enough of our lives and it's urgent enough um, that we're starting to see some of those sort of um, that push and pull become more of a, hey, let's <laughs> let's figure out what we can do. We need to act boldly and swiftly together. So it's encouraging. Yeah, it does feel like we're at a bit of a tipping point. I mean, this is something that comes up virtually in every election with every candidate that we talk about in this program. We talk about the housing issue. Why is it so difficult to address? Jesse, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think it's very difficult to address because it fundamentally addressing our housing crisis is going to require substantial changes. It's going to require unprecedented investments in affordable housing, um, funding, which is always ultimately sourced through taxation, which never is the most popular item. Um, And on the land use side, it's going to require changing how local jurisdictions regulate the zoning within their borders. Um, to allow more homes to be built in more places and especially more affordable homes throughout all of Washington state. Um, the one thing I'll add to, to Anna's point is that while the housing shortage is affecting everyone in Washington state, the burden falls most heavily on low income people. It falls most heavily on those who are least able to afford the skyrocketing price of rent 
and for whom um, spending a large portion of their income on rent leaves them vulnerable to basic economic shocks uh, and can even push them into homelessness. You have very neatly touched on virtually every issue that we plan to get to in this segment, talking about various uh, pieces of legislation. And also, and I'd like to start here with something that the governor is proposing. This is a bond measure that would generate $4 billion above the official debt limit during the next six years for housing. Let's start with this uh, proposal right here. Jesse, what would that money do, ideally? So the governor's bond proposal would essentially front load a lot of state revenue um, for affordable housing. It would issue the $4 billion, $4 billion worth of bonds um, to be spent over six years and then back that funding, not through additional taxes, but through the general obligation um, of the state's revenue. The proposal that he's laid out has a spending plan for the next two years. Um, the biennium, um, and he's shown how to pair that uh, bond proposal with the regular capital budget allocation. The bulk of the funds would be allocated to the Housing Trust Fund, which is the biggest state program for directly funding affordable housing construction in Washington state, with some additional funds available for infrastructure grants for affordable housing, land acquisition, and capacity building for local jurisdictions to plan and create better sewer and electrical networks to support more growth. So there are two bills associated with this. One in the House is 1149, the one in the Senate is 5202. This would have to be passed by the legislature and then be approved by voters. Is that correct? Yep. So speaking of the legislature, let's talk about some of of the important bills. And there are just a slew of them this year that are getting a lot of attention. I think the most uh, prominent right now is 1110. This is co-sponsored by Representative Jessica Bateman and Representative Andrew Barkas. This would address a gap in what is called middle uh, missing middle housing. First, and I wonder if you could just talk briefly about what is meant by missing middle and then what this bill would do to address it. Yeah, well, I'll start on just sort of building on what um, Jesse was saying about zoning changes. Um, That's kind of a technical jargony (laughs) word that most people aren't paying too much attention to. But uh, the the short and sweet of it is that our status quo zoning rules, housing rules in Washington cities is basically one size fits all right now. Um, Most cities prohibit everything but the biggest, most expensive housing on big lots, so single detached housing. Um, and most governments limit any kind of housing except that kind. So that means right now you can't add a duplex or a small apartment building on 75% of most city neighborhoods, most cities and towns in Washington. Um, so again, what happens is that the homes available are limited, it pushes prices up. And what we're seeing is that the wealthiest residents are pricing out existing lower income or fixed income residents. And we are also seeing modest older homes being replaced by bigger and bigger single family, um, big household McMansions, sometimes with just, you know, one couple (laughs) living in them. Um, And it wasn't always this way, Um, mixed income communities across Washington state's cities, big and small, have um, the traces of the zoning that we used to have, which allowed a mix, a mix of housing types from small apartment buildings, um, you know, four or six unit buildings that you see around, 
um, a corner store with a house home above um, and duplexes and triplexes. So those are middle housing, um, that kind of housing that's not one single detached house sitting on a big lot. It's multifamily housing that are kind of modest size and it's housing for people who are in the middle <laughs> themselves. Mm -hmm. So neither um, high income households nor very low income households. It's, it's the folks in the middle. So this is really also talking about maximizing land usage. It's my understanding in Seattle, for example, that the majority of residential areas, um, and you said that this is prevalent throughout the state, are currently zoned for single family units, not say, you know, as you mentioned, quadplexes, sixplexes. So this would change zoning for future constructions if, if passed, right? That's right. Um, future construction and retrofitting existing buildings. Um, so it's really infill. It's in cities within existing city boundaries. So um, modest size homes that can be kind of tucked in to existing neighborhoods um, and that do provide a greater range of house sizes and options for people of a greater range of incomes. Um, you know, and the important part is that it's housing homes where we need them the most in our job centers. Um, so where there's existing infrastructure, transit, school district um, services and and most of all jobs. Um, the alternative uh, when we aren't allowing that kind of housing in cities is that there's an enormous amount of pressure for housing development out into our rural areas, into our farmland, forested areas, um, into the counties. And people are seeing that too, where you, you know, a new development is cropping up in what used to be open space. Um, and, you know, that has its cost as well. Mm. So people with lower incomes are being forced to longer commutes. Um, that affects their, their pocketbook, their paycheck. Um, it has health implications. It takes you away from your family and your work for longer periods of time. Um, and it does contribute to, to sprawl and climate pollution as well. So, you know, there, we've mostly talked about affordability in terms of um, personal uh, ramifications, but there are also all these intersecting issues like climate, like sprawl, like habitat loss, farmland um, that intersect with this issue and make it even more important for Washington State. I just very much appreciate you bringing all of that context in because I think it's so important for people to really understand everything that's at stake with these bills. And as you say, it really isn't just necessarily about the housing. There's so much else going on, environmental impact, socioeconomic. Just if you if you want to continue on that path, I would love to also have you talk about 1245. So this is a bill by Representative Barkas um, that would make it easier for homeowners, existing homeowners, to divide their property into two lots. So what would be the benefit here? Yes, that's right. Um, lot splitting, another very non-sexy sort of jargon, um, kind of a bill title, but that's what we got. Um, it's really a bill to allow more starter homes in cities, uh, more flexibility and options for homeowners who may be cash strapped or find themselves on fixed incomes, especially, and for them to be able to afford to stay in their homes. So most Washington cities have zoning laws on the books right now that require every house to have a very quite large lot. Um, so that's by law that we're contributing again to that shortage of homes um, where prices go up, land prices go up, and it makes it financially infeasible 
to build anything but those bigger, more expensive houses that occupy a lot of space. Um, so it's a double whammy. Uh, a large lot requirement um, restricts supply and drives up prices and um, decreases the availability of those smaller, more modest, um, affordable options for people. So this bill would legalize smaller house lots. It's kind of a, it's like a no-brainer <laughs> solution, um, but it, uh, and it also wouldn't change the look and feel of a of an area very much. Um, right. It would allow another small home on um, an adjacent space on an existing lot, and it would do so incrementally. So um, there would still be local control allowing homeowners to split their lots into smaller parcels if they want to. It would not mandate smaller lot sizes. It would only be up to the property owner to do that. Thank you for clarifying that. That was a follow-up question I had. And you read my mind. Um, I also want to get your thoughts on uh, Representative Julia Reed's bill, 1351. This would eliminate parking requirements for residential developments near transit hubs. I think this one has some people scratching their heads as to how this would help alleviate uh, the housing crisis. So could you just kind of uh, offer some insight into how this this would this would help? Yeah. Parking, um, it turns out we're, we're overbuilding our parking, um, you know, especially in places where there are walkable neighborhoods where everything's pretty close together and convenient and where there's lots of transit. So when you require new housing and updated um, sort of retrofitted housing, like adding an ADU, an in-law or basement um, apartment, and you require a bunch of space for a parking spot, um, off-street parking, uh, it boosts the cost of that new home <laughs> that's being added. So again, it's driving up rent and, and home prices, but it also often prevents that home from being added in the first place because the cost actually becomes prohibitive or there's just not enough flexibility on that lot to add a home and the parking that's required. So overbuilding parking um, is costing us and you know, in the end, it's sort of putting shelter for cars ahead of shelter for people, which is what we need right now. Um, so we, the, the fact of the matter is we just need more flexibility and less parking spaces in places where they're not getting used um, and it's parking that we don't need. Jesse, do you have anything you want to add to that? I think one big important thing people need to keep in mind is that the cost of parking is enormous on the range of $50,000 to $75,000 per space when you're talking about structured garage parking, whether that's underground or above ground. And those costs are passed on by developers through to rents. Well, and, and speaking of rents, there is a bill aimed at capping rents. And this is something that has been a problem for a long time, as we as we know. Uh, the big one is 1124. This is sponsored by Representative Strom Peterson. Jesse, can you talk about this bill and what this would do? Yeah, so 1124 would require landlords to give tenants a six-month notice of any rent increases greater than 5%. It doesn't itself cap rents, um, but gives tenants the flexibility, gives tenants notice of any large substantial rent increases and provides some more certainty over time, giving them the ability to, if they're facing a substantial rent increase, 
get their affairs in order and find new housing that might be more affordable to them. It mirrors a policy we've had here in Seattle for a few years. As I mentioned in my initial question, rent has been uh, an intractable problem, not just in uh, in this state, but in you know states and cities all across the country. Why do you think that this bill is is finally getting some airtime this year? Why do you think the issue is finally getting some airtime? I think it's fundamentally about the insane rise in rental costs that we've seen since the start of the pandemic in 2020. Uh, especially in suburban areas, which were formerly more affordable. Um, you've seen 20 to 30% average increases in rents. And with some tenants having horror stories of 50, 60% rent increases. So I think that sharp rise in housing costs has really driven more of this um, demand for regulations to um, restrict or at least give longer notice of substantial rent increases. Jesse, I want to ask you about one final bill, and that is Representative Jamila Taylor's bill, 1474. This would address the racial gap in home ownership. Um, what would this bill do specifically? And, and also, maybe if you could touch a little bit on the history and scale of the problem here. Yeah. So the Housing Development Consortium has been happy to work on this bill through the Black Home Initiative. Um, we see that the racial gap in home ownership is huge and persistent. Only 31% of Black households in Washington own their own homes, compared to 68% of white households. And that's a bigger gap today than in the 1960s when racial discrimination in housing was legal. These ugly legacies of redlining, racial covenants, and other forms of housing discrimination have never really been addressed. The federal government and other actors created this um, white middle class through homeownership um, subsidies, like through the GI Bill and Federal House Housing Administration. Um, and in doing so, they created this enormous source of wealth for white households. And by the time that they got around to enacting the Fair Housing Act and uh, stripping away this explicit racial segregation, there was a, an enormous gap in housing wealth that has never been closed because it perpetuates over time, especially as we're seeing the especially as we're seeing housing costs rise faster than incomes. So I just would love for you to underscore that one point that you made, because uh, I wasn't aware the, the, the homeownership racial gap right now is larger now than it was under redlining. Did I get that right? Yes, it's larger Sounds than in 1968. Well, so then talk about what uh, the bill 1474 would do. So the bill creates a document recording assessment on all real estate uh, transactions $100. Um, it's really rooted in this idea that the real estate industry through racially restrictive covenants created much of this problem and has a responsibility to help correct it, to remedy the situation. The funding generated through this assessment would be used to directly support those who either uh, were discriminated against um, in housing or are uh, descendants of those who are discriminated against in Washington state. Um, it would support potential 
low-income homeowners directly through closing costs, down payment assistance funding, pre- and post-purchase counseling, as well as the direct creation of new affordable homeownership uh, options uh, through construction capital funding and uh, helping with pre-development costs. So it's really a, an attempt to bring together the nexus of the uh, the problem of the racial covenants, repairing the harm, and assisting those who have been historically marginalized and discriminated against in our housing system. This is just an extraordinary uh, piece of legislation. And I think a lot of people at this point are wondering what they can do to uh, support this and other pieces that we've talked about. Uh, we will get to that in just a moment. We have some very definite calls to action, but I, I wanna give each of you a brief moment to talk about other bills that you may be uh, watching and tracking that you'd like to, to bring to our attention. Anna, uh, we'll start with you. Um, yes, there are a couple um, accessory dwelling unit bills. Those are in-law apartments, backyard apartments, um, granny flats. They have all kinds of names that are more fun than ADUs. Um, but again, that is a type of home that can be tucked in to existing cities, existing buildings, homes, um, backyards, neighborhoods. And it provides, again, like the middle housing, a um, more modest size, efficient, convenient, close-in housing type um, in Washington cities, right where we need them near transit and jobs. Terrific. And uh, Jesse, bills that you'd like to bring to our attention? Yeah. So the Housing Development Consortium has a lot of bills on, on our radar. Um, one of them is the Affordable Homes Act, HB 1628. This would increase funding for affordable housing across the state. Um, by increasing the real estate excise tax, or REIT. It would create a new top-level tier at the state level, um, creating a 4% excise tax on the portion of property sales above $5 million, and dedicating the proceeds to the Housing Trust Fund, permanent supportive housing, and developmental disabilities housing. Um, it also creates a new local option real estate excise tax, allowing cities and counties to impose a 0.25% excise tax on property sales. And these would create a new local funding stream for affordable housing to help jurisdictions really get ahead of the crisis. Um, one other bill that we are tracking very closely is a transit-oriented development bill, SB 5466. This is meant to be paired with the middle housing bill. Middle housing has a broad zoning reform. Um, and then this TOD bill would create much more density directly around our transit stations, um, pairing the uh, broad reforms in land use across cities with focused interventions to create um, more transit supportive density. So the cutoff for all these bills to be passed out of committee is February 17th. I'm wondering, what are each of you going to be watching for between now and then? Uh, Anna, we'll start with you. Well, we are um, eager for legislators um, in the House and Senate who are going to be uh, voting, ha have the opportunity to vote these bills out of their committees to get to the next step. Um, we're going to be watching... Um, for what they need to understand about the bills. Um, 
but especially what they need in terms of hearing from constituents. And so there is a role to play if you're an advocate who, um, and you know, what's beautiful about this session is that it really is a broad coalition across issue focus areas, across sectors and across the state. So, um, you know, if you're an advocate for climate change solutions, if you're an advocate um, for habitat or anti-sprawl issues, if you're looking for um, ways as Jesse was describing to sort of reverse some of the legacy of those redlining um, and the ways that, that our cities have been segregated by race and class and income through zoning. This um, suite of policies is a way to undo that, that um, racial discrimination that we've built into the books and our zoning policies. Um, if you care about your kids having a place that they can afford near you, <laughs> in Washington State or care about um, aging in place and finding a way to stay in your neighborhood and downsize and afford a place that's maybe not as big um, in your own community. All of these issues intersect around this suite of housing bills. There's lots of momentum around it. There's actually bipartisan support. Several of the bills we've talked about today have either um, Republican or Democratic prime sponsors and Republican or Democratic um, co-sponsors, which is encouraging as well. Um, so anyway, you can go to all kinds of places, uh, you know, your your own advocacy lane <laughs> to find organizations that are working in this area that will have opportunities to, to get involved from AARP Washington to Sierra Club Washington to FutureWise to um, Habitat for Humanity, um, the Washington Build Back. Black Alliance, HDC, um, Sightline, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's there's a slew of opportunities to, to raise your voice here. Indeed there is. And we actually will be turning to Kat in just a moment for some very specific calls to action for folks who are listening. But Jesse, I'll just give you the, the, the final words here. What are you going to be watching for over the next couple of weeks? I'm going to be watching for every opportunity for a public hearing on each of our priority bills it's critically important that people weigh in on these bills. You can sign in pro on any of the hearings. Um, our, the HDC website has a legislative tracker where we make it really simple to just see what's coming up, where you can take action. One of the benefits of COVID has been that they've created an unprecedented remote testimony to make it much easier for people around the state to weigh in to legislators, to make their voice voices heard without having to travel to Olympia. It's critical that regular people let their lawmakers know that housing is a priority for them because the pushback within Olympia on, on these big zoning changes and funding bills is real. And we need lawmakers to remember how important it is to their constituents that they pass these bills. The other thing I'll be watching for is just every executive session and committee vote and what amendments are made and um, communicating to lawmakers about whether those amendments are positive or negative um, and urging them to push forward these bold housing policies. Well, you mentioned how important it is for people to make their voice heard. And so uh, to talk about how we can do that most effectively, we turn to our, our dear friend and executive producer of the program, Kat Pipkin. Hey, Kat. Hey. 
Oh my goodness. Uh, well, that was really instructive. Um, that helped put a lot of these bills into perspective for me. And I'm really glad that we got that overview. Um, so one of the things Jesse mentioned is that you can uh, sign in pro con on bills and both of the, the th- I have three actions for you. Two are signing in pro con, uh, in this case, pro on two bills. And, but the third, which I want to mention first is that for this system, Walledge allows you to create an account. And in doing so, you can go back in to Walledge and see which things you've signed in on. Uh, you can also change if you actually, if you did something wrong, uh, you know, if you signed in pro when you meant to do con, uh, and you can also see, you know, confirm whether you've actually signed in for a hearing. So that's terrific. That's, that's action number one. Secondly, the transit oriented, um, development bill that Jesse mentioned, SB 5466 has a hearing coming up and we want you to sign in pro on that. If you agree with this legislation, we have an action for you there. Another one we have is supporting building with low carbon materials, HB 1282. I don't think we talked about it here, but it, it intersects so intimately with so many other issues, including environmental uh, protections and averting climate crisis. So we have another sign in pro for you on that. Look for more actions to come, uh, in the next two weeks as we get closer to the hearing cutoff. I think things are going to heat up quite a bit. And as they mentioned, there are lots of organizations putting out actions. And you can trust that your issue lead, Ruth Lipscomb at the Washington Indivisible Legislative Action Team, is going through all of those and helping to prioritize them and get them in a way so that you know what to do when. And we want to give a big shout out to Ruth Lipscomb for her help with today's episode. It simply would not have happened without you, Ruth. That cat, thank you so much. And thank you so much, Anna Fahey and Jesse Simpson. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.